0: Hello and welcome to Monument Biography, a series where we explore how every place can come to take on different meanings for different people, with one space living multiple lives. I'm Emily Newman. episode, we visit the Painted Bride Art Center in Philadelphia, tracing the institution's longer history as well as the recent controversy around its potential sale. Through a number of interviews, Alexa Smith explores conflicting attitudes between the local community and the organization itself on what it means to save the bride when the building's future is jeopardized. Here's Alexa with a story.
1: So, how do you know The Bride?
2: I was a new Philadelphian, really, and The Bride was a place where I, I kind of got oriented a little bit.
3: I was getting a graduate degree, and I didn't know anybody or anything.
2: I was a First Friday, drinking at
4: a gallery, walking under the bridge, and saw that, like a glittering alien ship. I mean, it's absolutely an incredible moment to come around the corner and stumble on that thing you're like oh
5: my god all i know is like the painted bride is that mosaic (laughs) you walk in that's how i know i'm in the painted bride somebody like you know blindfolded me and then just only took the blindfold off once i got to that space i'd be like oh i'm at the painted
6: bride you know the bride's 51 years old we've been around for a long time and we mean different things to different people
1: Since its founding in 1969, the Painted Bride Art Center has become part of the lives of countless Philadelphians.
6: My name is Yolanda Wisher. I'm Laurel Razka, Emily Smith. Lillian Dunn.
1: Kathleen Volkmiller. And I'm Alexa Smith. In this episode of Monument Biographies, we'll learn what the bride means to artists and community members in the city, what's at stake in the sale of its iconic venue, and what matters most at the end of the day. The skin of the bride, or what happens inside? How is this monument shaped by public memory, and who does it belong to? We'll start with a trip to the source. Prologue, Corpse Bride. Ambient noise sets the scene of Old City. Cars and joggers pass a juice bar, a mural of Philly iconography, a row of fresh condos overlooking historic buildings and churches ringing their evening bells. Ambling around this picturesque setting, We find a mysterious specter out of place on the corner of 2nd and Vine. A massive building the size of a warehouse, completely covered in a veil of black mesh netting. The veil billows slightly in the breeze, and underneath you can glimpse what it's protecting. Flashes of shards of mirror like a homemade disco ball. Ceramic tiles in all shapes, sizes, and colors bordered in multicolored chalk. Paintings of nude figures, animals, faces, flowers, letters of text. These fragments come together in a fantastical technicolor mosaic that covers every square inch of the building, which takes up most of the block, a big question mark looming over the landscape. Along the front of the facade, a message reads in tile, The bride has many suitors, even. suitors are nowhere in sight. The windows behind the shroud are dark, and the locked glass doors show no signs of life inside the building. Taped to the doors, we see hand-drawn posters with slogans like, standing apart, coming together. Wash your hands and stay home if you can. The Painted Bride stands empty, like so many performance venues in the deep end of the pandemic. But The Bride's Closure predates COVID-19 and has a much more complex cause. The building has been locked in limbo for the past three years, and its dazzling skin has sparked a heated debate between the Philadelphia arts community, preservationists, and the leadership of the bride itself. To understand what's at stake in the bride's future, we need to start with its past. The bride wasn't always a spectacular, otherworldly mothership of a building, but it was always a bit of a local legend. Act 2, The Bride has many suitors, even. The Bride has a kind of urban lore of oral histories surrounding it. Stories passed around about how this unlikely space came to be.
3: Did your research lead you to the fact that the Art Center was originally in an old bridal shop on South Street? You know that, right?
1: This is Kathleen voke miller the editor of Painted Bride Quarterly, a literary magazine that was founded through the Bride as a print publishing arm for the Collective in 1972. 100 issues later, PBQ now operates out of Drexel University and is largely connected to the physical bride in name only, but their histories remain intertwined.
3: So, like, if I have to say what is the question I get asked the most at a book fair, right, if I'm standing behind a table is, how'd you get that name, how'd you get that name, right, right? no matter where we are? Um, And so when PBQ was turning 20 was right around the time that I had just started with them. And, and the editors then just put out a lip service call, where does anybody have a picture of the shop, you know, because they wanted it for the cover of that issue. And somebody did come up with a photo of a really old mannequin, like a, she looks very much like Mary Tyler Moore, and that it was that bridal shop. And, you know, that is how it got the name, that there were like overly painted mannequins left in the window. And it was, it's that simple, right? Um, And I know that, you know, so, you know, now I'm the old person. When I first came in, I was the young person. The old people kind of bemoaned that it had been more organic and true to its mission when it was in this abandoned bottle shop. But I mean, look at what South Street also changed greatly, and they never could have afforded South Street either.
1: These stories about the bride are more than just the colorful mythology of a single place. They're a part of Philadelphia's history, too, of its landscape.
2: Who told me the story of the Painted Bride? I think maybe Larry Robin told me the story of the Painted Bride, and how it even became the bride, because it used to be on South Street.
1: And this is Lillian Dunn. She was the new Philadelphian in the intro who said the bride helped her get oriented when she was first finding her way in Philly's art scenes. She now works with the Village of Arts and Humanities as senior program manager of the Spaces residency program which connects neighborhood leaders with artists from around the world to create unique arts-based solutions to local challenges.
2: The legend I heard sort of, it was on South Street, and part of its creation was in response to the proposed like urban development that would have totally, um, it was around the same time that they were trying to run the expressway through South Street.
1: This was the Crosstown Expressway a proposed limited access highway, which would have demolished a significant stretch of South Street to clear the way for its construction.
2: Which would have totally killed that neighborhood. I mean, they were doing urban renewal, which has been shown, I mean, now 50 years, 60 years on, to have been a racist and misguided policy that basically just served to um, cut you know, poor and working class black and brown people off of city from city centers and um, like isolate them. And so this people of South Street got together and really fought that project. And The Bride was a member of that coalition. You know, the history of The Bride is a history of community arts in Philadelphia.
1: This campaign to stop the Crosstown Expressway was a collective battle shared by artists and residents throughout the local community, including the mosaic artist Isaiah Zagar, who had just moved to town and started a gallery with his wife on South Street just a year before the Painted Bride began in its old bridal shop with the Mary Tyler Moore mannequin in the window. Emily Smith, the executive director of Philadelphia's Magic Gardens, has more to say about Zagar's part in that fight.
4: They moved to South Street in 1968, Isaiah and Julia, after being in the Peace Corps for a couple years. And they, they joined a movement that was really happening here, actually led by members of the Black community in the neighborhood that um, we're fighting this protest to save this community specifically from that highway. So Isaiah and Julie ended up sort of representing the artists and joining up to create this really beautiful, strong community that just said, no, you're not you're not allowed to come and 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 take us out like this.
1: The spirit of rebellion led Zagar on a mission to save his neighborhood through art. He'd take the streets that city planners had designated as blighted and make them into something beautiful for his neighbors with his own two hands, building mosaics wherever he was welcomed. Zagar was just one player in a period of vibrant artistic revival in the 60s and 70s, now known as the South Street Renaissance, but his work is one of the threads we can still see most clearly today. If you've been to Philly, there's a good chance you've spotted one of Zagar's mosaics on the street. Maybe you've caught your own reflection passing by the signature infusions of mirror, tile, ceramic figures, and found objects enmeshed over local businesses, alleyways, and even houses. Or maybe, like me, you've seen him in action, working a layer of bright pink chalk into the stone archway of a cafe. The selection of the sites for his pieces seems random at times. And that's because it often is, in a way.
7: One thing that's different with Isaiah is that he was an individual going around the South Street neighborhood individually talking to property owners who are either donating a wall or asking them for a wall.
1: Stacy Holder, Preservation and Facilities Manager for Philadelphia's Magic Gardens.
7: And I think that there's something about the way that that happens so organically and over like the period of a couple decades, a few decades, you know, um, it gave the neighborhood the work of an individual, right? Who was really invested in their neighborhood, in their community, right? And the people that owned the properties wanted those. I mean, there were a few where he just kind of did it. Like that's, you know, there's a couple there, here and there, but the people wanted it on their wall, you know, and they were excited to have it on their wall. And the people that helped him make it were people in the community, you know, and people in the neighborhoods, the Philadelphians from the neighborhood, right? And I think that that or the organicness of that is what sort of sets Isaiah apart from a lot of other public work.
1: Emily agrees that there's something to this idea about Sagar's mosaics growing directly out of these relationships with the people of Philadelphia.
4: We talk a lot that this might not have been able to occur in another city, that there was something extremely rebellious and... um And not necessarily in a good way. I mean, I don't think Isaiah pushes everyone's buttons the right way. I don't think he did things correctly. I think a lot of people don't like the work, but sort of whether you like that or not, or remove that character from it, there is something extremely unique that it's ours in Philly. And of course it happened in Philly. Philly is the kind of city that this thing can survive in. We had empty spaces. These were empty lots that Isaiah squatted on for a decade. Nobody cared about it. You know, it's like these forgotten moments all of the streets that are, are alleyways that are covered in garbage are now taken care of with murals and all this stuff like that. It couldn't have happened in New York City. It couldn't have happened in another city. There was something that, um, is very core to Philadelphia, which is, you know, we're, we're kind of, um, I I don't know quite the word, a little scrappy, a little bit, a little bit curious and also like really, Um, you know, like, don't mess with us, like, don't mess with our stuff. And I I think that the realization, which is happening slowly for people, is that there is nothing, there's no city like this that has this amount of work by a a mosaicist. I mean, we have so many public murals beyond the mural arts, uh, which is amazing. But, you know, having all of these mosaic murals, they have no concept of how important that is to the city yet. I think they will in the next couple of years. Especially if Isaiah's is no longer with us, it'll be a different value system, I think, too. But it is actually physically astonishing. And we're experts in this field. What we have in Philadelphia is it is it blows our minds. And we we know a lot about this stuff. It is really, truly special and amazing. So it's funny. And I think it's kind of the weirdness of Philly is why it was able to live the way it was.
1: For the past 50 years and going, Zagar's mosaics have been a fundamental part of physically transforming Philly's streets with spaces of wonder, play, and personal narratives of the people that live and work here. The Painted Bride is a culmination of that practice and a reflection of their shared history.
5: I think the artwork is iconic.
1: Yolanda Wisher, 2016 Poet Laureate of Philadelphia and current Spoken Word Curator for Philadelphia Contemporary.
5: It's beautiful. It represents something about Philly. I've taken lots of photos. Before there were things called selfies. I took lots of them before in front of that mosaic outside of the Painted Bride. Lots of conversations have happened in front of that mosaic after shows. You know, it's important not because of what happened. Well, yeah, it is important because of what happens in the bride, but it's about the people, really. Just like everything that happens inside The Bride has always been about the people. It's always been about the people. The fact that Ursula Rucker used to work the box office there, and that they had the Rock the Pens there for young folks in high schools, that was a lot of folks' introduction to Philadelphia was at The Painted Bride. And there was something about having to pass by that mosaic on your way in and to pass by it on the way out that makes me feel like that's a really important part of the space.
1: This means that as the arts landscape in Philadelphia changes, the bride changes with it, and those changes have brought a lot of growth, like when they purchased a new performance space in 1982, then commissioned a local artist to create a mosaic on the building's facade in 1991, a project which would end up spanning 10 years and encompass the bride's entire surface. But as the times changed, they also brought new challenges.
6: You know, funding has really evolved over the last 30 years. I've worked at the Bride for 30 years, so I've seen changes to the funding.
1: Here's Laurel Raska, Executive Director of the Painted Bride.
6: Um, the 90s was like golden. There was so much government support on the federal and state level that we were allowed to to have very expansive programming. But that money has gone away. And when that money started shifting, we started doing more rentals for, in, in our facility and using the rental money to sustain the organization.
1: And the bride was beloved and sought out for years as an affordable rental space for artists to hold events on a budget. Events that could then remain cheap or free for their audiences, too, expanding access. One of those renters was Lillian, who founded a literary magazine called Apiary in 2009 that needed a space to hold poetry readings and launch parties for their issues.
2: We were talking about the launch, we were like, oh, do you know any places? And they were like, oh, you should have it here. We were like, okay. And it was amazing. They let us have it there, I think for free. And it was this, you know, kind of open space. And from then on, it was kind of this touchstone that we could go back to. And for an organization that was volunteer run, we could have it relatively low cost, and they would work with us on ways to do that. And it was just generally the attitude um, where we were part of a family, of this arts family, and that they acknowledged that, you know, we really wouldn't be able to do this if we weren't doing it for free, basically. And that really made it possible to have the shows there.
1: But it turns out this kind of generosity isn't built to last without outside support.
6: You know, that was like running an entire different business, right? There's the business of artists and art, and there's a the business of rental. And although it was very, I believe it was very important to the community to have a low cost space they could use, um, it was not financially feasible for us. Because at the rate that we could support them, it wasn't, it wasn't really generating revenue, it was just using energy and resources.
1: Venues cost money to facilitate, and that money needs to come from somewhere. If it doesn't come from ticket sales or the artists renting the space, then where? Laurel stated that they get the bulk of the revenue from grants and donors, but both of those have been falling in profits for years now. So they made a difficult decision in 2017. They decided to sell the space.
6: Yeah, so, um, you know, we did years of research and we and, and our research was like whole picture research. Um, part of being a, a leader of an arts organization is you not only have to look at the next year, but you have to look at the next five and the next 10 years. And so we saw shifts in audience behavior, we worked with younger artists and had focus groups and did programming to support them, and and found that you know they weren't interested in in coming to Old City or to coming to us the same place. They were interested in more experiential experiences and you know things that happened in unique places that maybe they had not been before. Um, we did a deep financial analysis. We did we looked at renovations of our building and how we could move forward um, maintaining the building what that would take and really came to the conclusion that 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 our new vision wasn't the bride wasn't a building the bride's not a building you know the bride's a way of working with artists it's a set of values and it, it it's it's unique in that and that's what people value you know I'm very nostalgic about the building. I mean, I've worked there for 30 years and and raised my daughter there. She's like, I have had more meals at the bride and met more people than any place else in my whole life. And um, amazing transformative things have happened there, but not because it's a building, because it's a way of working. And so our goal is to take that way and, and move it around the city. I mean, we have an extensive set of relationships with organizations throughout Philadelphia.
1: When The Bride went on the market in 2017, it received two offers, one to the tune of $2.2 million from a local nonprofit theater, with the intent stated that the building and the mosaic would be maintained as part of their new performance space. The other came from a local developer called, I kid you not, Groom Investments for $4.85 million over twice the amount that the theater was able to supply, without any such promises that the building would be maintained. Given Groom Investments' track record, it seemed more than likely that the space would be zoned for demolition and condo development in its place. The bride's leadership looked at these two offers and made the decision that would serve the best interests of the organization's future they chose to accept the groom's proposal, but this also meant sacrificing the future of the mosaic. This sparked a great deal of controversy from the surrounding arts community, who, as we've heard, had grown to know and love the bride's iconic mosaic as a reflection of their history in the space. Isaiah Zagar and the Philadelphia Magic Gardens were an integral part of the community force that rose up to try and save the bride or at least her skin, by petitioning to have the site designated an historic landmark, and attempt to block the groom's sale. Here's Emily.
4: It's a long saga. It's very complicated. And it's very emotional. It's a a really, it's a tough, it's a tough conversation we have to continuously be having. Our stance has always been trying to support the bride to move on as their mission is to now move off site. They don't feel like they can um, continue to take care of the building. So we've always really been hoping that they could move on with their mission without compromising the building and, and the mural. So we've always been trying to collaborate in that capacity. It hasn't really worked for for many reasons. And the bride really feels like in order to continue their mission, they need to make as much money as possible, which would be to sell to a developer who... Wants to tear down the building for sure, so you know that was sort of why we went to the historic designation process first. We won the criteria. We uh, they did acknowledge that it ha- it met the historic criteria. Then when it went to the second panel, they we lost by one vote, and um, it was a pretty controversial moment. It was really intense. And then it went to Orphans Court, and that was when uh, Judge Carafiella really said that the bride hadn't take it into account, the, the price of this artwork for the community. In that time for always, every conversation we've ever had with the bride we've met many times, we've always offered, in perpetuity, free preservation work. We have a repair plan ready, ready to go as soon as possible if we ever got permission to do it. So the mural is actually in very good condition for, the, for its age and its scale. And um, we know for sure that we could work on it. And we also really, really, really wanna work on it. We love that building so much. It's a complete masterpiece. It's um, 7,000 square feet and it's, it is remarkable and iconic beyond even our own thoughts on it.
1: As someone on the inside, Laurel understands this love for the bride's building and what it represents for the community's history. But at the same time, she thinks the bride is defined by much more than its skin, no matter how beautiful and beloved it is, that the bride makes the art at the end of the day, not the other way around.
6: I, I feel that, you know, that, that emotional pushback that you know, people have about it, the, the nostalgia about it. I mean, I understand that, but at the same time, like we're, we're the small organization. We're the one that has to take the risk. 're we're, we're the ones who have to be innovative, you know, because we're, because of our size and, and our way of working. So yeah, it's, it's, um, it's tricky, right? It's tricky. And I think that the other tricky place is you know, the bride's 51 years old. And so we've been around for a long time, and we mean different things to different people. And so it's always been like, okay, what is the bride? You know, that's always been a problem because we have such a wide network of, of things, whether, you know, somebody got married there, maybe they came to the best show in their life there, maybe their son played on the stage. I mean, like, you know, when you meet people just walking around, there's so many different connections. And, um, you know, that, that's legacy. And we feel that, like, we can take that legacy and continue on.
1: But in Emily's view, The venue is an integral part of the bride's legacy. In fact, it's more than just a part of it. It's a monument to that legacy.
4: What is extra sad about the story is that the building tells the incredibleness of the painted bride as an organization. So it's actually, it is the monument to, and I know, and the bride will say, it's the work, it's the work, of course it's the work, but so much happened there in that building and in the building before it and the people that they're no longer with us, their stories are on that wall. And in 50 years, someone should be able to walk around the corner and say, holy crap, what happened here? What is the Painted Bride? Because it could be a totally different iteration at that point too. This building is, is the physicality of its history, and it's, and it's beautiful. And it's this unbelievable example of public artwork, of mosaic work, of an art environment, of a visionary artist, I mean, a Philly, the whole thing is captured right there in the building. And um, I don't know if the bride realizes that that's a loss too. I mean, I think they acknowledge that, but they don't, I don't know if they can see that far into the future, that, that level of loss. Um, for the rest of us.
1: A similar sentiment was echoed by Yolanda, who spoke of being able to bring future generations to the bride in years to come, whether or not the organization itself survived.
5: You know, people will go back to that place, that mosaic, as a way to kind of pay homage or to reminisce about the history that was made. So what do you give people to go back to in terms of, you know, are they going to go back to somebody's condo, right? Mm -hmm that's not necessarily, and it, it doesn't live there necessarily, or is it a website? Is it some kind of archive? Is it a series of events that, or family reunions, you know, that happen? You know, it's a family, honestly, that's what I think of it it's like, it's a family. And that's why people feel it so poignantly, the loss of like, it's like you losing your, your family home, your grandmother's home or something. And it's like, where do you gather that kind of family again, if not at that place? the sense of wanting or the yearning is to be able to have a place to return to. And yeah, I mean, you know, I I do care about what happens to that space next to that mosaic, you know, like, in terms of the accessibility of it, for just that reason, like being able to still be able to walk there with my son one day or walk by there and say, hey, you know, what this used to be this place where there was these awesome poets and musicians and performances would happen. And I used to bring my students here. I'd love to be able to be, you know, be able to still touch that, you know, and say, and tell a story about it. Can't do that if it's all gated up and it's only accessible to a group of people who pay rent to see it.
1: But once again, we see a shared goal approached from two different directions because the bride has been thinking about access for its artists and audiences too. Here's Laurel again.
6: You know the bride's always been about artists you know and so how can we support artists and you know we have a unique way of working with artists where artists lead. like you know what can you imagine if you what is your dream project and how can we help you realize it and so and predominantly artists of color right and so as our neighborhood shifts and new people come in i mean And, you know, they're not so concerned with the community. Like on Vine Street, we had people who had been there for longer than the bride, but now all of those people are gone. But when they were there, they knew, they didn't necessarily come to the bride, but they knew the bride was important. And, um, you know, in the last couple of years, people are kind of finding the bride to be a nuisance, right? There's noise, there's rowdy people. You know, there's other other issues that they complain about. And so it no longer feels like that's where we belong. And when we look at the landscape of the city and arts, it's really about access right now. You know, I mean, the bride's been committed to diversity for, for 30 years. And so we have a wide expansive network in the, in the city. Like we've done that work. And now it's about access and so it's something like 90 percent of the arts funding goes to center city and so all of the outlying neighborhoods don't have access to these kinds of activities and so rather than asking people to come down to you know a neighborhood where they may or may not feel comfortable like we can take the work to them and meet people where they are and that really is you know the the passion that we have right now like bringing bringing them resources that they, they don't have access to.
1: At the end of the day, the bride's story comes down to a question of what it really means to build a legacy. You need a foundation, a bedrock to build it on, but you also need a path forward for that legacy to continue beyond that piece of stone. The good news is that sometimes you can have both. Um, so
6: last October, we went to Orphan's Court to get approval to sell the building and they denied us approval. So we appealed, but at that time in November, we put the building back on the market with the uh, contingency that whoever bought it would maintain, would keep the mosaic. And so we got several offers and at the same time we appealed. So we have an offer now that you know we're working through that, that is about keeping the mosaic.
0: We'll be right back.
1: ever after. So that's where we stand as of December 2020, a new deal on the table slowly working its way through a pandemic court system that could potentially give everyone what they want. A chance for the bride to shed her skin and create a new future, while also allowing her past to be preserved. Before our interview ended, I asked Laurel if there was anything she wished people on the outside could understand about the bride's situation. People like me, and like Emily, and like Yolanda, and Lillian, who love the bride, and love the space, and don't want to see either one fall at the expense of the other. But she just said something that she'd already told me, that the bride is more than a building. And the funny thing is, we all agree about that.
5: I was never a fan of the inside of the building that much
1: (laughs) to tell you the truth i opened this episode with a simple question how do you know the bride and yolanda was the one who answered that she knew it by the mosaic but the full answer is as always a little more complicated here's the whole quote in context
5: like as a venue it needed some updates like if as somebody who's used it in lots of different ways, like as somebody who's used like just as a classroom space or as somebody who's used it as a big performance venue, like I did a poetic address to the nation there. And so we had to broadcast to live television from there. We had to video and we were also, you know, using the entire building. And there were lots of, you know, there were lots, there was lots of charm, old fashioned kind of charm to that performance space. There are lots of uh, ritzier places to set up venues, but none that may have that kind of welcome because I knew a lot of the people there who knew me for a really long time. So I don't know so much if it's about the inside of that space or even the building. Like I couldn't even tell you what the shape of the building, like from a bird's eye view, an aerial view look like, to tell you the truth. All I know is like the Painted Bride is that mosaic. <laughs> you walk in, that's how I know I'm in the Painted Bride. If somebody, like, you know, blindfolded me and then just only took the blindfold off once I got to that space. I'd be like, oh, I'm at the Painted Bride. You, there's not even like, I can't even remember like a sign that says it or a, the specific lettering that like really stands out. It's just the mosaic. So it makes me happy to hear that the art and this, the labor of an artist who is, you know, given a lot to the city and to the face of the city and the textures of the Philly, of Philly, what we know as Philly, a lot of us in this generation or two feel as Philly is being preserved, but the space itself, man. You know, I'm always about like, yeah, build your program. Your program is is tight, right? It can live anywhere. It should be able to live anywhere. And I guess that's the experiment that the painted bride as the people who run it and are holding it together think is that it is about the people and it is about what we're trying to do out here in Philly.
1: I also started out this episode seeking to answer a slightly harder question. What's more important, the skin of the bride or the art made inside of it? But by the end, I'd realized this question, like most binaries, was hard because it's too simple. They're both important because they're a part of each other and sometimes two parts of a whole need to separate in order to avoid destroying each other and live on. Epilogue. In her time as poet laureate, Yolanda found new ways for poets to take up space across the city, even if those spaces were ephemeral and only designed to last an evening. She collaborated with Mural Arts and a team of other poets, including Lillian, to curate an event called The Monument to a Philadelphia Poet. From this event, she gathered and wove together a collective, crowdsourced poem entitled The Poet's Bill of Rights. This poem leaves nothing concrete behind, no literal landmark to prove it was there, but it lives on in the work that we're inspired to build next. Here's Yolanda, one last time.
5: Poets' Bill of Rights writes. Poets have R-I-T-E-S. Poets have R-I-G-H-T-S. The right to make monuments, the right to be monuments, to have their names and lights, to water into podiums or no podiums, to pop their peas, to literally or figuratively drop the mic. Poets have the right to compete and not to compete, to date other poets and to avoid dating other poets, to be paid for opening their mouths, to barter and sell their books for whatever they deem worthy, to ask for more money than you offer, to be compensated fairly for their craft and emotional labor by releasing deeply personal parts of themselves on the page and stage, to not be discounted like merchandise in Filene's basement, to be treated like every other artist you hire, not be intermission or ornament, to be funded, form organizations, to teach children, to be authorities on the English language and all derivatives thereof, to create their own grammar and undiagram their sentences, poets have the right to hate your favorite word the right to judge your tired ass cliches. Poets have the right to cuss, to say, fuck Trump, to talk shit and be unapologetic about it, to be weird, loud, and political, to deliver the message to the people without pretty words to please the masses, to express their heart whether you are in agreement with them or not, to wear capes and funny hats, to use sidewalk chalk, sharpies, and fancy pens, to break any rule of poetry they want, to read from the page or the screen or the mind, to free verse from its binds, to dream, for without the dreaming of poets, our world would have no music and no pathway home, to see many dimensions of truth at once, and to tell it unfettered by censor's nonsense, that bright sight truth undimmed and unshackled free, a poet has the right to be free.
1: This episode was written and produced by Alexa Smith in beautiful downtown South Philadelphia inside of my bedroom closet. Special thanks to Yolanda Wisher, Lillian Dunn, Laurel Raska, Emily Smith, Stacey Holder, and Kathleen Vogt-Miller for their time and generosity in supporting this project.
0: This has been an episode of Monument Biography. To learn more, visit us online at stellaonline.art. That's S T E L L A online.art. You can also find us on SoundCloud, Apple, and Google Podcasts. Our theme music is by Emily DeWolfson. Additional music by Oliver Pryor, Homeomorphic, and Virgin of the Birds. This episode was produced and edited by Alexa Smith and me, Emily Neumeyer. Our thanks to Temple University and especially Katie Gegenheimer for their support. The production team's home base is the Tyler School of Art and Architecture in Philadelphia. That's it for now. Until next time, take care.